Go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 15. We're going to be looking at the first 15 verses uh, this morning. That's Mark 15, verses 1 through 15. Uh, We are at the point of no return in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus has been betrayed by Judas, one of his disciples. He has been taken by the chief priests and scribes and the elders. And at the end of chapter 14, we saw the way the Jewish leaders were looking for any possible thing that they could use to condemn Jesus to death. They brought false accusations, uh, none of which Jesus responded to. After trying tirelessly to correctly accuse him, the high priest himself asks Jesus directly who he is. He asks him plain and simple, are you the Christ, the Son of the blessed? And Jesus, being under oath at that point, responded in an unmistakable way. I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Mark 14, verse 62. To which the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What's your decision? The group then spit on him, took turns striking him and taunting him. And that pretty much leads us to our text today. Uh, Jesus is still in the hands of the Sanhedrin, uh, the, the, the board of Jewish leaders. All of this happened in the middle of the night while Jesus, while Jesus' number one disciple Peter cowered in the courtyard nearby with the guards. Uh, but it turns out the Jewish leaders did in fact need another witness in order to put Jesus to death. They needed permission from the state uh, because they were under the rule of the Romans. They may also have preferred for Jesus to die at the hands of the Romans so as to not be blamed by the people for killing their master. We know earlier in the gospel that the people's love for Jesus was one of the things that stayed the hands of the Pharisees time and time again. But whatever the case, they decided to bring Jesus before the Roman governor Pilate in our text this morning. Pilate, who himself was uh, a pretty pathetic governor, Uh, it's just known he held his position for about 11 years, which is longer than anyone, uh, any of the multiple governors in Rome during that time. And the the reason it was held that long was because he was mediocre. Uh, Normally, governors only stay one or two years and then they move up. Uh, But Pilate had been there for a long time. And yet, as average or as mediocre as Pilate was, he is infamous throughout history because of what he does in our text this morning as mentioned by the Apostles' Creed. Let's read our passage together now. Mark 15, 1 through 15. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. 
And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him! And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him! So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. This is the last stop on Jesus' way to be crucified. His disciples have abandoned him. The religious leaders accused him, and now the Gentile courts consider what to do with him. Now, this meeting between Jesus and Pilate is shorter in Mark than in any other gospel account. But even still, there is much we can learn from these 15 verses. Uh, if you're looking for a main idea of this portion, I'd summarize it this way. Jesus was innocent, and everyone knew it, and that's the point. Jesus was innocent, and everyone knew it, and that's the point. And I think that will become clearer as we make our way through the passage. Uh, there are three things I want you to see in these 15 verses. First, the resolve of Jesus. Second, the envy of the chief priests. And third, the fear of Pilate. My prayer is that as you meditate on these verses, you'll remember the sacrifice that Christ took upon himself so that we could be saved. So first, I want you to see the resolve of Jesus. The resolve of Jesus. This is what shines most clearly in the way that Jesus composes himself through this trial. Uh, remember the Sanhedrin, they met the night before, and they came to the conclusion that Jesus was a blasphemer because he claimed to be God by calling himself uh, the Son of Man who would sit at the right hand of power. Uh, it's Jesus' response in 1462. And that response of his that I've already quoted is actually uh, a way to claim divinity or to call yourself God three different times. Uh, first he says, I am, which is the very name the God of Israel used to reveal himself to Moses in the burning bush. Second, he refers himself to David's Lord, sitting at the right hand of God from Psalm 110, verse 1. And thirdly, he refers to himself as the Son of Man who would come in the clouds of heaven to judge all the earth, which Jews all knew would be God himself. So they beat him in their own court, which if you'll remember was no fair trial by any stretch of the imagination. They arrest him, and Mark tells us that they were looking for a way to condemn him, and many false witnesses were coming before him. And as soon as they found one, they waited until morning to bring him to Pilate. Uh, it wasn't until dawn, typically, that Roman courts opened and they started hearing cases. And uh, so uh, the Jewish council, as soon as dawn arrives, they bring Jesus to him. They bring Jesus to Pilate's desk first thing in the morning. That's the main point there. They waste no time. They bind Jesus up at the end of verse 1, which makes him look perhaps all the more threatening to Pilate. But it's a little bit of a strange thing to do. 
Because if you'll remember, when Jesus was arrested, he says to them, why have you come out with clubs as if I'm a robber? He goes with them willingly. Uh, He is not dangerous in the slightest. But they still beat him up and tie him up, bring him before Pilate. And Pilate receives Jesus with a question in verse 2. He says, are you the king of the Jews? Uh, Which is the first time that we have actually heard this title in the Gospel of Mark given to Jesus. Uh, Though certainly the idea of a Messiah or the Christ uh, in Judaism was a king figure. We know that even as Jesus came into Jerusalem, this is obvious as, as blind Bartimaeus calls him the son of David, the son of Israel's great king. Uh, He fulfills Zechariah's prophecy by riding in on a donkey, clearly a a kingly kind of coronation, fulfilling that prophecy. But this is the first time that we've really heard it, especially coming from the mouth of a Gentile. Throughout the book, uh, we have mentioned how there were false assumptions about what a Messiah would be, Uh, specifically that a Messiah would lead some kind of political revolt against the Romans, which is why Jesus typically told people uh, not to tell others what had happened when he healed them or when Peter confesses that he is the Christ rightly. There were all these misconceptions. And now the chief priests use that as a way to pose Jesus as a threat to the Roman government in front of Pilate. Uh, What you need to understand is that Rome did not really care about uh, whatever theological debate or problems that the Jews had among themselves. Uh, in fact, in John's gospel, Pilate, John records Pilate even saying, what does this even have to do with me? You guys judge him according to your own law. Uh, and then they object and say, we, we don't have the authority to, to exercise capital punishment. Uh, so that's the idea here. But the title, King of the Jews, makes Jesus a potential political danger. Uh, Pilate, therefore, asks if he claims to be the king, and Jesus' response Uh, is a little veiled. He says, you've said so, uh, which is not really a denial, but it does kind of sound like uh, Pilate is using it, that term, without knowing exactly what it means. Jesus is saying, yes, I am, but that doesn't mean what you think it means. Jesus is, in fact, king of the Jews. In fact, he's much more than that. He's the king of kings and the lord of lords. Yet he settles to say as little as possible during his trial, just as he did before in front of the Sanhedrin. He remains silent in verse 5. And Pilate is amazed by this. Pilate's amazement comes from his admiration of Jesus' self-control. And we know that because of the way it says that many false accusations were made against him. Uh, We know how difficult it is to remain quiet when someone is saying false things about you. Yet Jesus exercises incredible self-control here in this trial. Mark says in verse 3, he emphasizes the false accusations, and then Pilate even again in verse 4, see how many charges they bring against you. I'm guessing that another part of Pilate's amazement of Jesus was the way Jesus composed himself before the chief priests. They're frantically trying to get Pilate to condemn him. And Jesus is just quietly sitting through the trial. You can tell that Pilate is perplexed by Jesus, perplexed at his self-control, as well as his resolve not to fight the chief priests. The Jews act like Jesus 
is the kind of criminal of the century. Yet Jesus doesn't act like a great criminal. He doesn't appear violent. He doesn't seem dangerous even. And the accusations aren't all totally coherent. But Jesus shows great resolve by going along in the trial because he knows that what he is doing is a part of God's ultimate plan, which we know couldn't have been an easy thing to do. Uh, We know that because he prayed in the garden three times that the Lord would remove this from him. But after doing so, resolved to go according to the Lord's will. What can we learn from Jesus' resolve in the face of false accusations and a confused judge? A first point of application, suffer patiently. Suffer patiently. If there's any way Jesus is a model for us here in these verses, it's in the way he patiently endures ridicule and blasphemy and affliction. A low view of God might lead you to think that Jesus must have done something wrong to end up in this situation. But on the contrary, he's done everything right. He's exactly where he's supposed to be. A right view of God recognizes that sometimes God places us in the way of affliction for his good purposes. We assume suffering means something is wrong, but here is one example that sometimes God intends to use suffering for something good. One of the reasons I think the purpose of Jesus' suffering is made so clear to us is so that we'll be confident God is working through our smaller sufferings, whatever they may be. If God's at work in the greatest example of undeserved suffering, clearly he's at work in the lesser examples of his people facing trials. We're not promised a life free from suffering, but we are promised that God works all things out for the good of those who love him. So, beloved, are you facing affliction? I want you to see the example Jesus gives us, to be reminded that suffering is not always a sign of God's disfavor. Oftentimes, when we see saints suffering in the Bible, it gives birth to something much bigger that God is doing through it. So, brothers and sisters, whatever trials or afflictions you face, suffer patiently. Honor the Lord in the way you resolve to do His will and not your own. Romans 12, 12 says to rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, and to be constant in prayer. Remember that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So suffer patiently. A second point of application, trust God who is in control of all things. If there's anything Jesus could have done but didn't, it was control the situation. He could have easily taken control. Uh, He could have gotten himself out, avoided it altogether, uh, knowing the time and place of his arrest. He could have influenced Pilate with his wit, as he did with so many others up to this point in the gospel, yet he remains silent. Why did Jesus do this, we might ask? The answer is because he trusted God, who's in control of all things. Jesus' composure through this trial is due to the fact that he knows God is in control and that God will use the wicked acts even of the chief priests and Pilate according to his plan. Third thing, submit to Jesus. Uh, You may be here this morning exploring Christianity, 
Uh, and if that's you, I'm so glad that you're here. Uh, thank you for being with us. Uh, there's nowhere else we'd rather you be on a Sunday morning, and you're always welcome to join us uh, here. I want you to see from this passage Pilate's amazement with Jesus, and yet at the same time his passivity towards him. It reminds me of the way Herod enjoyed hearing John the Baptist speak, but in the end beheaded him because it was what others wanted him to do. Uh, Dear friends, we must all decide what we think of Jesus. And being intrigued or even amazed by him does not save you. One pastor, Kevin DeYoung, said, Fascination is not the same thing as faith. Fascination is not the same thing as faith. If there's anything this passage does for us, it reminds us that everyone must make a decision about who Jesus is and act on it. Pilate was amazed by Jesus, but he didn't submit to him. He didn't confess him as Lord. I want to encourage you to explore the Scriptures and explore the claims of Jesus. And if you find the claims of Jesus credible, then submit to Him. Decide to change the way you're living, turn from your sin, and put your faith and trust in His Lordship. If you have any questions about what that might look like for you, feel free to find me after the service. I would love to have a conversation with you about that. The second thing I want you to see in this passage is the envy of the chief priests. Uh, This is so obvious that even Pilate notices in verse 10. Now, of course, this is the whole reason Jesus is in this situation. They envy him. They despise him. Just like the trial the night before in the Sanhedrin, uh, there's nothing fair or balanced about it. The Jewish leaders simply want him dead, which is their sole motivation for bringing him to Pilate. And to make things even more interesting, the note from Mark about the envy of the chief priests comes after Pilate offers to release Jesus to the crowd. Mark explains in verse 6 that uh, this was a custom uh, during the festival, and that festival is referring to uh, the celebration of Passover, which the Jews were celebrating that week. Pilate would release a prisoner to them uh, as kind of a gift on a holiday. And Jesus would have been a good person to release, since it doesn't seem like he's obviously guilty uh, of committing any crimes. Certainly there must be some people who value his release, since he is the supposed king of the Jews. But perhaps the most shocking thing about this entire passage is that Pilate sees that Jesus is brought out of their envy, which means that Pilate himself doesn't think Jesus is guilty. He's not convinced of Jesus' guilt. It actually appears that Pilate tries to do Jesus a favor by offering to release him as part of the festival celebration. That was his solution to the predicament and a way to get himself out of the trouble of ruling over the case. And that's when we learn about a man named Barabbas. Uh, We know very little about Barabbas. He too, like Pilate, is immortalized throughout history because of this passage. But we don't know much about him except for that he was charged for murder under some event called the insurrection. Uh, We don't know exactly what that was, but we can trust that Mark's original audience uh, did know what he was referring to, since it seems like it was common knowledge. Uh, There were, at different times, uh, various revolts we know from uh, historian Eusebius during this time against the Roman Empire. 
So Barabbas was likely leading or part of one of these revolts and was convicted of killing someone in the process. And the most important, in fact, only important thing to know about Barabbas is this. He was guilty, unquestionably. He was a known criminal. Jesus was not. But the priest's hate and envy for Jesus was so strong that when Pilate offered to release Jesus, who was innocent, the chief priests went through the crowd, riling them up to instead demand Barabbas' release. Verse 11. See how far envy drives one to madness, that they would convince a crowd to free a murderer over an innocent man. Imagine preferring a murderer to go free. And they didn't stop there. It wasn't just enough to keep Jesus imprisoned and to release Barabbas in his place. It didn't satisfy them just to release a criminal. When Pilate asked the crowd, what should I do with Jesus, the king of the Jews, what do they shout back? Crucify him. Again, we see Pilate's confidence in Jesus' innocence in verse 14. And Pilate said to them, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. What evil has he done? I want you to sit for a moment and just think about those words. Coming from the Roman governor who was over the case. What evil has he done? Friends, the answer is none. Jesus is the lamb without blemish. He had no spot or stain. He was without sin completely. He is the only one in the world who ever lived that has never done any evil. Among the officials, the governor, the crowd, he was the least deserving person to be crucified. Yet as we read last week in fulfillment of Isaiah 53, verse 7, the suffering servant, he opened not his mouth like a lamb led to the slaughter. A few points of application for you. Put away all envy among you. Put away envy. Another name for envy is covetousness or jealousy. Uh, This is a sin that we can easily leave out, I think. Uh, It's not, you know, one of the really bad ones that we often think of first when we list sins. So it can fly under the radar. It can be sneaky. It doesn't seem that bad sometimes doesn't seem like it hurts anyone because no one knows about it except for you. But leave it unchecked and darkness will grow in your heart towards others and towards God. Envy was the sin that led to Cain killing his brother, Abel. It was the sin that led Joseph's brothers to sell Joseph into slavery, staging his death. It was a sin that led David to commit adultery and murder. And in this passage, it has turned those who are supposed to set the moral standards for the people, and it has turned them into murderers of an innocent man. You shall not covet is the 10th commandment. But uh, it is referred to at times as a root sin, because you can trace just about any sin back to some kind of desire for something that you don't have. Envy blinds you to to, to what is right and what is wrong. It tries to justify unloving thoughts towards others. 
That's why James 3.16 says, Where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder. So put away all envy. A simpler way to say it would be this. Don't be jealous. Don't be jealous. Second, grieve evil, but remember the victor. Grieve evil, but remember the victor. It's appropriate to cry out to God when there is great injustice. That will happen in this life. It should grieve us when evil prospers, but friends, remember the Lord uses wicked men to accomplish His plans. When it appears wickedness goes unchecked, remember that there will come a day when the scales will be balanced. Jesus spoke about this in His response to the Sanhedrin. When He told the high priest that they would see the Son of Man coming in the clouds, that's a way of saying, you might be judging me at this point, but there will come a day that I will come in the clouds and judge you. Those words were more than just an affirmation of his deity. They were a prophecy of judgment against the men who handed him over to Pilate. Third, be confident in the Lord's control of the future, just as he was in control of the past. Be confident in the Lord's control of the future, just as he was or is in control of the past. Uh, over and over again, we've seen all of Jesus' predictions throughout the Gospel of Mark come true. It's Mark's way of reminding us that none of these events were accidental. None of these events were things that just got out of hand, that weren't supposed to happen. They were all, in fact, planned by the Father. And friends, if all of these moments in the past were planned out carefully we had better remember that our future is no different. God knows all things and controls all things. Therefore, we can trust Him in everything. The third thing I want you to see from this passage is the fear of Pilate. The fear of Pilate. Uh, this point is not so obvious in the text. It could be taken as an implication of point two. Uh, but the reason this point is meaningful is because of how clear it is in this passage that Pilate's not convinced of Jesus' guilt. Pilate clearly doesn't know what to do. Uh, we know from the other gospel accounts that Pilate also consulted Herod to get a second opinion, the same Herod that beheaded John the Baptist. Uh, he also washes his hands in front of the chief priest, symbolically to say that Jesus' blood was on their hands and not his See how clear it was in Pilate's mind that Jesus was innocent. And yet, look at what we read in verse 15. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. It's difficult to know what exactly is going on through in, in Pilate's head. Perhaps it was a concern for his own reputation, Perhaps it was a desire to be seen by the Jewish people as cooperative. Perhaps he did fear some kind of political uprising. But since he released Barabbas, I don't think that's exactly the case. Whatever it was, we can at least say this. He gave in to the pressure of the crowd against his better judgment. He decided to please the crowd over an innocent, man, innocent man's life. He decided to take the easy route in front of him. Rather than using his position of authority for good, he used it for evil. Instead of protecting the innocent, he harmed Jesus. He scourged him. 
Uh, you likely have a, a footnote in your Bible next to that word scourged. And uh, what that is, is something that the Romans would do specifically to prepare someone for crucifixion. Uh, crucifixion sometimes would take too long to kill someone. So they would scourge them ahead of time, and that involved basically stripping someone down, tying them to a pole, and whipping them with a whip with split ends with bones or metal tied to the end of it, specifically barbed to tear away chunks of flesh. This is where Jesus is sent after this trial. There's no limit to the number of lashes uh, that someone could receive when they're scourged. Some prisoners would even die from this portion before even making it to the cross. In short, Jesus' body was being prepared. Shortly after, he was delivered up to be crucified. So how can we apply these events to our lives? Uh, three more points for you, briefly. Pray for men and women in high positions of authority. Uh, this is something that we do weekly in our pastoral prayer. We try to model it because it is commanded in Scripture in multiple places. But people who have the final say on important things, uh, they're in the center of ripple effects that influence people around them. And the pressures and decisions that they have to make are great. Now, we should pray for high-profile people, not just because they're influential, but because of these pressures are far greater than we know. One pastor said, high places are slippery places. High places are slippery places. I think that applies well to Pilate here. So friends, we should pray for men and women in high positions of authority. Second, fear God more than man. Fear God more than man. Uh, we often uh, think about... <laughs> That statement, we must fear God more than man, uh, is actually a, a verse in Acts. And we often think about you know, making these martyr-like stands when we use this verse. Uh, we imagine ourselves making a big stand uh, for what we know is right in the face of much adversity. But friends, are we willing to fear God rather than man in the little things in life as well? I think for us... At this time period in our culture, fearing God over man realistically looks more like having that uncomfortable conversation with people to let them know you go to church and you actually believe what the Bible says. Uh, sometimes it looks like uh, believing that marriage is between a man and a woman alone. It looks like standing for the belief in Jesus that he died and rose again and lives today. It looks like seeking the approval of God and not man. A third point of application. Prepare to stand alone to do the right thing when you're around non-Christians. Being a disciple of Jesus may likely alienate you. But that's, it's for that reason that the counter-application I would give you is to lean in to the church. The church is God's given community and fellowship for believers who are isolated by the world, who take up their cross to follow Jesus. 
That's why Jesus says anyone who loses a family member or friend gains a hundred when he follows Christ. Because the Lord has made us brothers and sisters, bringing us, adopting us into the family of God. So lean into the church. In both the first and the last verse of this passage, we read that Jesus was delivered over. We've been prepared for this. Uh, We've been prepared for this because throughout the book, Jesus has talked about the Father's plan for his life. In chapter 931, for example, Jesus stated very clearly that he would be handed over into the hands of wicked men. In 1045, Jesus said that he would give his life as a ransom. In 1421, Jesus said that the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to his betrayer. And then in 1427, Jesus reminds his disciples that God will strike the shepherd. And when the hour of his betrayer is at hand, he says, the hour has come. The Gospel of Mark is just crawling with statements that make Jesus' death a divine necessity, we could say. Something that must happen. His betrayal and unjust hearing had to happen in order to save sinners. By providing a substitutionary death a lamb without blemish in the place of a murderer. And that's what makes the gospel beautiful. Friends, in this passage, do you realize that we're all Barabbas? None of us are innocent. We've all done things against God's law that make us guilty before Him. Unquestionably, there is no one righteous. And yet the good news of Jesus the Son of God, is that He willingly gave His life as a ransom in order to free sinners. He laid down His life to take upon Himself the wrath of God that we deserved. Friends, do you see how clear it is that Barabbas did not deserve to go free? It's the same with us. We don't deserve to be saved. Yet God, in His mercy, sent His Son to be the propitiation the substitute for us, the very thing that the Passover celebration celebrated. The Son of Man gave His life so that those who were once guilty could be set free. We're all Barabbas. We're all liars, murderers, adulterers, false witnesses, blasphemers. But just like in this instance, no matter how guilty we are or how undeserving we might be, Christ offers salvation to those who turn away from their sins and trust in His Lordship because the penalty has been paid. He laid down His life for us. The good news of Jesus is that though we are all guilty, God provided a way for us to be forgiven. And He's done it through the sacrifice of His very own Son. You know, one other thing to note about Barabbas His name is Bar Abba, which just means son of a father. And we find out from the Gospel of Luke that his first name is actually Jesus. Jesus, the son of a father, is exchanged for Jesus, the son of the father. It's it's quite ironic. Jesus' life, betrayal, trial, and death were no accident but God's kindness and mercy towards us. For this reason, Jesus was delivered to be crucified, 
though he was innocent. Everybody knew it. Judas knew it. His disciples knew it. The Jews knew it. Even Pilate knew it. But friends, that's the point. Because behind his innocence is the necessity that the Son of Man, to quote chapter 8, verse 31, must suffer many things. It was by his very suffering and eventual death that God opened a way for sinners to be saved by grace because of the willingness of Jesus to submit to the Father's plan out of his love for the Father and his love for his people. Jesus was innocent. Everybody knew it. And that's the point. Let's pray.